Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Discover the power within Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome. I'm Bishop Heather Shea from the United Palace of Spiritual Arts, here with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. Today, we are honored to have one of the foremost scholars of Buddhism, Dr. Robert Thurman. Thank you for joining us. The Buddha is said to have existed 2,500 years ago. What makes you think his teachings have any relevance to humanity in the 21st century? Well, first thing is, as the great uh, Buddhist master Nagarjuna and great world philosopher, actually, not just Buddhist, um, who lived about 2,000 years ago and supposedly lived for 600 years, actually, (laughs) although modern scholars are so bollocked up about it, they think there were three of them. You know, there was a reincarnation, and somehow they think the Indians didn't bother to make note of that fact. (laughs) But never mind that. But anyway, as he said, time itself is only relative. And all the past is actually still here with us, Mm -hmm. both positive and negative aspects. We notice we still have the Civil War here with us in the U.S., for example. That's over 100, what is that, 150 years ago, 170 years ago, and it's still here, you know. And um, we go back, you know, Native American genocide, you know, what have you, you know, conquest of England by the Normans. I mean, all of these historical things are here. The past never disappears. It's whether or not we have it written down. It's in people's minds, in their genes, in their subtle unconscious, and we have to deal with it. And so what the Buddha was really was a kind of physician. He was a doctor doctor of the mind. He wasn't really a prophet. And um, poor Max Weber, when he did the social psychology of world religions, he couldn't figure out how to classify Buddha. So he said he wasn't a, he wasn't an emissary prophet, he was an exemplary prophet. Because he had to be a prophet which founds a religion. But actually he wasn't a prophet at all, the Buddha, actually. He was more like a doctor. And what he taught was how to cheer up basically, a psychology of how to overcome suffering, and uh, by understanding its causes, like just any medical analysis, and by a therapy that would undo those causes, and would be the cause, but in a way you can't cause freedom from suffering, because his insight and his teaching was that uh, the third noble truth of the freedom from suffering is reality, actually. And so you don't need to cause it, it's already there. It's just you have to come to understand it, that's all. So um, it's just totally just as relevant. And it's a nice thing, actually, that primarily it is a kind of therapy, a kind of, you know, people will say it's a way of life, it's a philosophy, 
it's a this and it's a that. It is, and it is all of those things, and it has a side, a side uh, sort of uh, effect of being religious for some people who can't directly undergo the therapy, which involves education. And in some eras in history, people have not been able to undergo that education. And then they believe that the people who are undergoing it are valuable and they support them. And for them, it becomes a kind of religion. But for the people who are undergoing the education, it isn't really a religion. It's really a learning and an unlearning of, an, of a misknowledge, of a, mis, of a delusory way of dealing with life and um, finding the reality of life. And it turns out, happy news is, <laughs> if you know the reality of life, it's great. It's not yes. bad. Even death is okay. It's just part of it. And it's a little bit traumatic, like, uh, you know, like diving off, you know, a, a high-level diving board, you know, a 20-foot diving board. That's traumatic. But then you plunge in the water and you're not so bad. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. I answered too long. I shouldn't do that. No, it's magnificent. Not at all. Go ahead. And, and Dr. Tim, say a little bit more about Buddha. Who who was Buddha? Where did he come Buddha from? Buddha was, uh, sure. He was, uh, Buddha was an extraordinary person to start with. with uh, he was like a Mozart, you know, like a prodigy, Einstein, Mozart, something like that. And um, he was raised to be a prince, a king, and a general. And it was predicted father when he was a baby by very efficient and effective Indian soothsayers that uh, he would either conquer a huge empire, and the father really liked the sound of that, as he was a king himself, or he would become a Buddha, an enlightened being, and he would, he would help a lot of people. And the father didn't quite, I mean, the father was a nice person and liked to help people, but he didn't really kind of know what that was, a Buddha helping people. As far as he knew, the best way to help them was to rule them well. As That's his job as a king, you know. Unfortunately, a king also is a commander-in-chief, even those days. And so, as the job of a king, you have to be ready to fight wars with neighbors in those days. You know, India in those days was like Greece. It had these city-state kingdoms that mm -hmm. would often fight each other, like, you know, Athens and Sparta and this sort of thing. They had, that's how India was. It wasn't one country. And um, so Buddha, if he had stayed as a king, he would have had to defend the country. And he probably would naturally have uh, overrun some other ones because he was such a great, um, whatever he did, he did it really well. But uh, then what happened was, so then the father... Uh, made a huge effort to keep the Buddha in his palace. And he saw to every kind of pleasure that an adolescent or a child would want, or even a grown-up. And then he became very happily married. He fell very much in love with a beautiful woman who fell very much in love with him. And uh, they married, and um, they had a lot of fun, and then they eventually had a child. And, and then the crisis came to him, because in the, in the Indian system, when you have a child, especially a son, because there's patriarchal society in those days, then you're, the king would abdicate and go to an ashram, and the, the son, the father of the new uh, prince, would be the king. So the king would go, on, go to Florida, you go to Miami on a vacation. So he was very happy when Buddha had a son. Buddha and Yashodara, his wife, had a son. And he said, great, that's wonderful. I'll see you around. I'm heading off for a permanent vacation. And Buddha said, Dale, I'm really sorry. 
I would love for you to have a vacation, but I'm going on vacation <laughs> because I don't want to be king. So what? You don't want to be king? You're king. You, know, you have to be. That's your job. He says, no, I'm sorry. Uh, you said, okay, why not? The father said. Then he said, well, you told me I was brought up as a king. I have to help people with their problems. And I have to see that they have a good life. And that's my duty for my citizens, my subjects. But I have observed that I'm not going to be able to have them have a good life as a king. All I do is defend them and see to the economy. And But that's not their real problem. Their problem, though, the problem of birth, aging, sickness, death, anxiety, meeting unpleasant people, losing pleasant people, etc. He listed a whole bunch of things. And he said, as a king, I can't particularly do anything about that. But I, that's what I want to do something about. So then the king said to his son, he said, well, son, you're worrying about a bunch of unnecessary things. We have high priests. We have uh, all kinds of Brahmins, and they intercede with the gods, and then they see to it that the people deal with those problems, the existential problems that you're talking about. That's not our job. And Buddha says, well, if the high priests are taking care of it, and the gods are supposed to take care of it, they're not doing a very good job. And I think I can do a better job, and I'm going to go find out how to do it. I'm going to become enlightened, and I'm going to do it. So then the father did what they do in that situation. He locked him up <laughs> and sent in a bunch of psychiatrists. And uh, the king uh, said, oh, sorry. I mean, and then Buddha escaped, actually. Supposedly he had supernormal help. So, you know, divine help, but anyway, the way they tell the story. But anyway, he did escape. And he went off, cut off his hair, gave up all his jewels, gave up his clothes, actually, his royal clothes, his horse. Horse almost died of grief. Horse really liked him. And then he went off as a mendicant. People say monk, but that's not really correct. That's a Christian term and indicates someone who wants to be, go to solitude. But a mendicant is someone simply who seeks higher life and then um, asks for free food from people and exemption from military and taxes and family duties. It's kind of bad. He abandoned, of course, his wife and son uh, for that time, saying that he would do more for them in the long run than he could do as a father in a family, and also knowing that they would be well taken care of in the royal family. So it wasn't, they were not destitute or anything. But but that's a kind of bad thing. But that was part of the shock of him having to drop out of the ordinary uh, sort of culture with the family life and family system and his sort of inherited duty and the patriarchal thing. You know, like, um, like Jesus, the Buddha was born in... His mother was not claimed to be a virgin. She was the chief queen of the king. But uh, he, the king was not involved in his conception, according to the legend. And that's, of course, in, a, in mythic stories or real stories, whatever, that's a symbol of um, a, a leader who is going to shatter some of the patriarchal traditions. You know, Joseph Campbell and those kind of people pointed that out. <laughs> And Buddha also had that, he shares that with, uh, with Jesus, that particular detail. Actually, there are some Japanese scholars who studied all the apocryphal gospels and everything, and there are 22 different uh, characteristics of the Buddha story that is similar to the Jesus story. The big difference, of course, is Buddha is not crucified, although actually they, some people try to destroy him, but they fail. 
and um, one, and then two, he, therefore he gets to teach for 45 years or 46 years after his enlightenment. He, he is, his therapy, his understanding of the human problem um, and the problem of self-centeredness as a psychological sort of scientific understanding of it and how to, how to heal it, how to give therapy to it, um, uh, and that people have the human beings have the capability of overcoming the certain type of you know um, uh, sick self centeredness uh, which uh, which enables them to then understand how they really are a relative being interconnected with all other beings that 's the basis of the therapy, and a human being is capable of succeeding at that therapy so then he 's founded his institution of mendicancy. And India, luckily, had a very wealthy economy. It was the most wealthy of all agricultural economies in all of Eurasia, actually, was India, with its big river valleys, you know, that it had. And so there was a surplus of food and a shortage of freezers. And therefore, people were happy to give it away to the mendicants. And lots of them joined up, and it it had a revolutionary effect in Indian civilization, actually. And uh, which was very good for Indian civilization. They produced so many great things. But the one bad thing about it in the old world was that when you became more civilized and you became more gentle and you became more loving and more compassionate and more kind and more happy, then you became more vulnerable to people who were unhappy and unkind and violent and had warrior fighters and this kind of thing. And so gradually India became more vulnerable and uh, by the um, by, the eleventh century of the Common Era, uh, approximately, it was overrun by people who really crushed the Buddhist institutions, and so, uh, they set back the Indian, the general Indian ones, as well. Not, and uh, right up through to the British for a thousand years, Mughals and and Persians and Tajiks and then French and Portuguese and English just kept trampling on India, you know. Right. And the Indians kept eating their mangoes and singing their ragas. <laughs> and only lately are they beginning to show their ability. Right. Dr. Thurman, there's, in the Buddha's life, it seems to me, yes. they're almost like, it's almost cut in, 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 in two halves. And, and the, the great moment in his life is, occurs, they say, below that Bodhi tree. Something remarkable happened after he yes. studied for over five years. He, he becomes a mendicant monk, spends about five, six years studying and, and, and doing all kinds of austerities. And then yes. he sits, you know, a Bodhi tree and something transforms him. He, he, he sits down, Shakyamuni Buddha, right? He, well, he sits down, um, 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 Siddhartha Gautama, and he yes. arises Shakyamuni Buddha. Yes, yes. What in, happened? In one night, in one night, actually, they say. And right. um, he found it was much easier than he had thought. And uh, one, one very important thing is he receives a meal from a beautiful village girl who at first thought he was a demon because he was so scrawny, mm-hmm. but who nursed him back to health and gave him some wonderful food. And somehow, you know, he managed to balance the extremes when he had been a prince. He had been so much indulged in every kind of pleasure and every kind of, you know, indulgence 
uh, from all levels, you know, including sexual, you know, like harems and things. And then, and, and, and then he got bored with that and so had then also had a happy marriage. And so, and so, and then he, parenting, he became a father. And so he had a really everything you could want in a worldly thing, wealth and everything. And then he completely, you know, destroyed himself practically. A lesser person might have died. He came close to death and um, starving himself and really extreme asceticism. And then he realized, then he collapsed kind of, and then he was fed by a woman. And, um, and she gave him this, Sujata was her name, and she gave him this, and then he went feeling more healthy, took a bath actually. His ascetic companions, the five of them, they abandoned him. They thought he had copped out of their punishing the body routine. And he got in the, he sat and made him, found a middle way and he relaxed. And he kind of looked carefully at things. And um, then he understood the nature of the world. That is what happened to him. So he realized so, that he realized that we can do that. We we're, were terrorized, actually. Human beings in the societies we have known, all of them, are terrorized by authoritarian cultures, which are both have author often authoritarian versions of spirituality and authoritarian versions of governance, militaristic and authoritarian versions of governance. Patriarchal, also, I might add, male-dominated, and uh, mostly. And, and they're terrorized to be told and to be brought up and to be educated that we cannot understand the world. You know, and when I was in my brick church, my Presbyterian church as a kid, and I, say, I, I used to argue with the preacher there, the minister, our Reverend Niebrugge, I remember his name, and uh, he, he used to tell me, you can't understand. And, well, I said, well, who does understand? Oh, God understands. Well, why can't I understand that? Well, you just can't. And uh, I said, really? But, but um, how do you know that if you don't understand, I told him. <laughs> and then well, what makes you think so? Oh, that's what they say. Yeah, maybe they say that. But I don't think God is mean like that. Why would he exclude, if he can understand, why would he exclude us from understanding? So I rejected that idea. And then I, then I went to school, and the scientists got after me, and I loved, I liked them too. And they said, oh, yeah, you could understand how many angels on the head of this atom or how many germs in this virus or, you know, whatever. You can understand all these things. Although in those days, that was before even we knew about genes, you know, about the mm -hmm. DNA and RNA and all that. We were so dark age, talking about dark ages in the 1950s, <laughs> 40s. And uh, so... Uh, uh, but but you can't understand everything, you know. No, no, no. You know, then you when you know little, then you know how much more you don't know. You use the term in, uh, enlightenment. What is enlightenment? Enlightenment is understanding the world. It's as easy as that. And basically, it's the discovery of the relativity of the world. And relativity doesn't just mean light photons zapping around, bouncing off their at their absolute uh, top speed as Einstein's level of relativity. Relativity means you and I, Heather, and Don Jose Miguel, and, and the other gentleman, we're all interrelated. We're 100% interrelated. No one of us has anything absolutely different from anybody else. And our existence completely interdepends on each other. Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful expression for it in English with the great, uh, the great uh, Vietnamese teacher, he calls it interbeing. 
So that's what reality is, and enlightenment is knowing that. And unenlightenment, which means misknowing, is Bob Thurman thinks there's a Bob Thurman me that is completely different from everything else, and it's all different from me, and uh, and actually, therefore, it's kind of my basic absolute concern is me. And that me is an unchanging fixed thing. Maybe I call it my soul, maybe I call it my identity, maybe I, maybe I want to call it people that they wanted when they first discovered DNA. They wanted to say, it's my unchanging DNA. They acted like it would be unchanging, and you went through... Once you could analyze it, you could then control people's health, which is, of course, ridiculous, but didn't happen because one's DNA is always changing, interconnected with everything. So point is, that's what enlightenment is, is knowing that completely. I'm not just having a theory about it, but experiencing it and feeling interrelated with everything. And the minute you feel interrelated with everything, you realize that you, it's there, everything is wonderful. And other beings are beautiful, and you love them. And you might, you realize you're not that bad, usually, when you're in a better mood, and <laughs> when you're loving to them. And you, and you begin to connect to things, and you realize that we're in this marvelous planet. And we, right now, I'm breathing because those trees out there are making oxygen, and they're taking my, my exhalation carbon, and they're making leaves out of that, along with the help of the sun and a few things, a little water. <laughs> and it's just perfect for us to thrive in if we don't get too greedy and crazy. Unfortunately, when we think we're absolutely separate from everything, we're in a horrible situation where potentially everything is against us. So in a way, it's a battle between us and the world. And therefore, we want, we greedy, we want to have more of it that we own or control or we somehow make our own to feel a little less overwhelmed and outnumbered. But no amount can possibly help because it's infinite, the world. It's not Dr. limited. That's ridiculous that there's only so, so many stars. Silly. Dr. And, Turner, uh, yes. So, we, so, and then we get angry when we, because we think others want to incorporate us into their, into their separate world. So, so it's the, what enlightenment is, is knowing there is no such separation except as a play, as a kind of illusion, like a drama in a theater or a movie. And that really we're all interconnected and, uh, and um, we're one. But each one of us as a human gets to understand being the same as everybody else in our own way. So we each have our own kind of enlightenment, which is fun, relatively speaking, our own enlightenment. Okay? And once the Buddha achieved his enlightenment, yes. there is, he, he develops this thing called the Four Noble Truths. Right. Which seem to be the very foundation of his teaching. What are the Four Noble Truths? What are these right. realizations? But really, it's only, it's only one truth. And it really is really only one truth. And that is the truth of the third one, which, which is put in the position of the third one. You could translate those words as four noble realities or four noble facts. They don't, truth is not wrong, but you know, putting truth on it makes it sound like it's a credo, you have to believe in it or something. But that's not what it is. It's a diagnosis. And the, therefore, it's only one truth, really. And that's the truth is that there is such a thing as freedom from all suffering, 
and that that is the birthright of every sentient being, but particularly the human form is an ideal form, with better than a divine one, actually, in the Buddha's view. Buddha's never against, Buddha's, Buddhists are not atheists. They don't disbelieve in the existence of deities and angels and, even, and demons also, and, and all hells and things. That Buddhists are completely into that. But they just don't think there's one who can be blamed for everything <laughs> or given credit for everything. Everyone interdoes it. We all interdo it, and we're constantly interdoing it. So it's really only the one truth, which is the shocking truth, which is that, well, that which helps us overcome the terror of the authoritarian societies, Eastern as well as Western. And that terror is you just are inadequate. You cannot understand. You are kind of bad, actually, a lot of them tell people. You're going to, you're, you'll have all this sin and ignorance and you're terrible. And you'll never get out of that. But we'll help you. And we, the government, will help you if you just fight our wars and pay our taxes, etc. And we high priests will help you because we have an all-powerful being that is in charge and that he will help you or she will help you in some cultures. And that sort of thing where you're just helpless and, and the life is a veil of tears and, and, it's, and it's enlightened to be resigned to suffering because it's inevitable and all this, that is what the Buddha challenged in the one truth that he taught, which was nirvana. And, he, and nirvana doesn't mean we're all leaving and going somewhere else. What nirvana really means is this is nirvana if we know what it is. When we don't know what it is, it's a, it's a problem. And therefore, the only problem is not sin, but the only problem is ignorance. Although it's, it's different than what we normally think of as ignorance. You know, the first noble truth, the second noble truth is the truth of the cause of the suffering that we experience when we don't know the, third, the one noble truth, the, the nirvana, freedom. But uh, but when we uh, so we we suffer because it's us versus the universe. It's not even so, rocket science. So, Doctor Thurman, if, if it's you versus everyone, you lose. Right. If in and fact, that's the first noble truth. But that only means, but it's caused by not knowing what you are, where you are, what the world is, and therefore engaging in a battle with the world to try to overcome what seems to be coming at you and overwhelms you right and when you realize it isn't a battle it's a it's a it's a love fest actually really ultimately mm -hmm. if you know what it is then you're fine you're as happy as a bee live or die even death you don't mind it's like you know we think uh, when we are alive we think it, when I'm awake, I'm enjoying so many things. I can talk to Heather and Don Jose Miguel. I'm Bishop Heather Shea, and we will return in a minute with Dr. Robert Thurman. Thank you for listening. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages this is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to our conversation of Buddhism. So the point is, dying is just like that. 
You just get up again and you carry on. And in, in, in the West, by the way, they had that in the Mediterranean cultures, they believed that. In Jesus' time, it was common knowledge, what was called metempsychosis. And in, in classical Judaism, they still believe in reincarnation. It's not like it's just some weird thing out of Asia. It's like very common sense, actually. But anyway, that's another story. I'm sorry, I interrupted your, your follow-up. No, no, not at all. That's my problem. Not at all. I appreciate what you're saying. If, if, if the central truth is that we have the capacity to, to overcome suffering, yes. how do we do that? What is, the, what is the path? We learn what it is, and really fully, like scientists. And oh. we learn what makes us subscribe to it, you could say. So what is and suffering? What? what is suffering? Suffering is, well, you know what it is. It's a, you stub your toe at some time, you know. <laughs> uh, you know uh, all, this, all of these things that have to do with resisting, put it this way, if you're a, a surfer, which I'm not, because I grew up in New York, not in California. I wish I was. I, I admire surfers. But if you're a surfer, you learn to sort of position yourself and you get that wave and that and then it's exulting and you feel one with the ocean the air the sun the wind uh, and you feel fabulous and you ride in on that thing and uh, although there's nothing holding you really up on the thing you just like flow with it and then how do you get to be able to do that well you suffer a lot you fall off you get trashed by the wave. You try to do it this and that wrong way. You don't know your balance. You get tight, uptight and frightened. You don't let yourself kind of slip into it. And wham, you get thrown on the ground. You can get killed even. And so so that's what we, so, so when we rigidly are there and we're just feeling all frightened of the wave and we don't sort of commune with the wave and the wind and, the, and, the, and its motion and its energy and so forth, then we suffer. And when we learn to fit with it and go with it, it's wonderful. So, so that's the thing. That's how we learn. But of course, life is more complicated than surfing, although surfing could well be a great lesson in life. So there's what's called an eightfold educational path, which, which, um, which is the fourth noble truth, and which is the way in which we open up to the reality of the third noble truth. And, and uh, that begins with revising our worldview and um, looking at what, how we, what we think the world is and critici criticizing all these frightening views and, and wrong worldviews, like that, that, that we're permanent, we never change, that there's an absolute permanent thing that is still relating to us that we have to worry about. Uh, we learn the meaning of the word nothing, which is there is no such thing, so we can't become that, etc. A lot of things, basically, we learn relativity in a deep, total, mental and physical way with the heart as well as the mind. And once we learn true relativity, we are able to surf life and we are able to surf things that other people think are suffering and we can go with them and they, become, they don't become a bother. And actually, you know that yourself. Everyone knows that. That's why, because we're this amazing thing. We're humans. And we didn't get to be this way just like automatic. You know, it was quite complicated to get to be human. It was an evolutionary process. And we, we did it by 
trying every trying it out as a tiger or a lion or a crocodile for lots of times and then we realized the shortcomings of all those life forms we even were gods at different times and we found out the shortcomings of those which is we're really intelligent but we're, we're everything seems so easy for us because we're divine and we spend our time in 10 million year jacuzzis <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty nice, actually. Um, it does, but it's not good because then you don't learn to surf, to surf, where you can experience, you know, Niagara Falls as a jacuzzi or something. I can't explain it. It's I know it sounds terrible. It's that's why you know when he when Buddha first taught the four noble truths to the first people, he knew that they would think that Nirvana was some somewhere else because some other thing. So he could, because they couldn't imagine themselves. And of course, when he looked at them, remember, they hadn't had a square meal in five years. They hadn't had a bath. They hadn't cut their fingernails or hair. They were a complete mess. He looked at them and said, this is suffering. <laughs> it, was like, it was like an obvious statement in their context. But they thought that was getting them somewhere. But he, he realized it wasn't. So he said, middle way, guys. Don't torture yourself and don't indulge yourself. And then, because you, you have to be healthy, you have to beg a square meal every day, and then you have to really study yourself and study the world, study the atoms in the world, the subatomic, do your quantum physics, and you'll discover relativity. And they did, actually. They Dr. Did. Thurman, in, in popular American um, belief, uh, there is this sense that Buddhism is against desire, that desire yes. is at the core of all suffering. Yes, that's now, right. I've always found that interesting because... No, but that's not Buddha, true. That's not Buddhism. Right, that's, that's what that's, I was going to ask. Because he doesn't teach that. You, can you, can you, you go, speak to that? You know, I, I, this is in the line of what I was saying. This is a good question. You know, if you... When I recently went to Sri Lanka... And I read a lot of Pali suttas, you know, the, I was saying, you know, he, so the Buddha let, let people think for a while that some people, that, that they were going to go leave the world to be free of suffering. So they, they were thinking that nirvana was somewhere else, like some like deep freezer kind of place where you didn't suffer. Because the world, you can't possibly be in a state of not suffering while you're in the world, which is filled with problems. So he let them think that. Although when they got more strong and more internally happy and more aware of how their mind works, he then let them know, by the way, you don't have to leave town. <laughs> it's right here when, you, when you're capable of understanding it. And then they got that, actually. At first they were, oh, what you, I thought we thought it was over there. And they said, yeah, but over there can't be an absolute state because if it's over there, it's not here. That means it's relative. So, so you know, which is a really simple thing to understand, actually. But, you know, people want to feel there's an escape. You know, we're very escapist human beings. That's why they kill themselves. When they're materialists, they tend to kill themselves too easily because they think they're going to some other place that's going to be free of problems. You know, nothing, which is nothing. They think they're going to nothing, like existentialists. And that's ridiculous. That's insane, actually, because nothing is nothing. It's not a place you go to. But that's another story. But anyway, in that light, I read one famous sutra of that dualistic type of understood by people who still do the dualistic trip. They still think they're going somewhere else. And in it, it the first noble truth is a long list of, of pleasures. And they're all suffering because they don't last. And because they're accompanied not just by desire, they are the objects of desire, 
but they're accompanied in addition by an extra craving. So that's why the presence of that excessive craving is why that they, they don't, they're suffering. In other words, seeing a beautiful flower is a suffering because the flower doesn't last and you're looking at it doesn't last and you're, you know, somebody tramples it or whatever, you know, but that's because you want more of it. It, then when he comes to the third noble truth he says where is this nirvana but then he says and in this, but in this case there's no craving so you just you just if you see a flower the momentary seeing of it is just fine you just love it and you don't crave to see it that's neck and moment and therefore it kind of takes you away from your sense of if things are inadequate I don't have enough you know, I need more, you know, this sort of excessive feeling of incompleteness. It's complete. Everything you do is completely complete. And you're in that moment, like he was under the Bodhi tree when he looked up and he saw the morning star, which was Venus, by the way, mm -hmm. the star of love. You know, the, they have the same planets, you know, they have the same, uh, you know, astronomy, astrology that, uh, that the Westerners do, Indians do. India is the West, actually. They have Indo-European language. Sanskrit is like, it's like Russian or Slavic or German or something. What, what's the difference between Tibetan Buddhism and other time, types of Buddhism? Uh, no, there's not. Actually, in a way, Tibetan Buddhism is sort of a misnomer, but, you know, all words are a little bit misnomers in the sense that from the Tibetan point of view, it is complete, authentic Indian Buddhism kept alive in its final phase which you could say has three major phases in, the, in, in its history in India, depending on the maturity of Indian civilization going toward what civilization should really be, which is a, which is a culture, human culture of gentleness, wisdom, justice, equality, kindness, love, compassion. That's what, you know, wisdom, you know, that's what civilization should be. Civilization is not having subways. Civilization is is those qualities in life, you know. And so, so but, but uh, India was way ahead, there's no doubt. And therefore, they suffered against the militarism of all the conquerors, you know, in the last thousand years. So, so the difference only is that this was crushed in India because of the vulnerability and gentleness of the people. And, um, it, however, it thrived in China, in Southeast Asia, and continued in Sri Lanka, in a lesser form than it had been in Sri Lanka. You know, in Sri Lanka originally it was all three forms of Buddhism, in, you know, Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. But after it was that that synthesis was crushed in India, it then reverted to just being Theravada. And uh, then in um, in the East Asia, they didn't get as strong a sense of Theravada as they as they as they should have had as they had in India. So in India, all three, the three types of Buddhism were um, very beautifully connected in the last 500 years of its time there. And that's the version of Buddhism that Tibet embraced and, and because the Indians gave it to them, because the Indians realized the leaders, the enlightened, most enlightened ones, what they call the adepts, the siddhas, you know, the, the fully, fully enlightened ones, um, they realized that the Indian society was getting too vulnerable and that people would be, were attracted to it by the beauty and brilliance of the culture and they were coming to get it, you know. And then they would, of course, 
try to arrange it in their own way and domineer it and dominate it. And, uh, you, you know, you can't dominate people. People are free, have to be free. Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism is said to be defined by many, many things, especially something called Lamaism. Let okay. me just finish one thing. Let me give my kind of bottom line, which is that this took me maybe 30, 40 years, and I'm not enlightened, I don't pretend to be, but I'm a little more oriented toward it, let's say. And, and it took me maybe 40 years of studying it to finally realize, and teaching it, which is a great way of studying, as you learn more every time you teach it, and that is that Buddhism considers happiness the rule. And Buddha is the, is the great defender of happiness, like Matthew Ricard, like the Dalai Lama. Even in the midst of adversity, he is the defender of happiness. He only has the um, a reputation uh, that he's teaching suffering. And that's the opposite. Buddhism says you should be happy. It says you should cheer up. And that if you are suffering, it's because you don't know what's going on. And you can, but you can find out. That's the whole thing. And then once you find out, you're going to be happy. Even some person like me who is unenlightened, but I sort of am oriented toward it, and I see the sensibility of it, the common sense logicality of that message, you know, that cheers me up a lot. And um, I can argue it and defend it too, even though I don't really enjoy it that much, because <laughs> I, I don't know it with the full level of viscera, you know? From the gut, you know, because that was I've been a you know like a ivory tower person. What does it mean to say that the Dalai Lama is the incarnation of the Buddha of compassion? Right. So what that means is again that's another shocker to a Westerners that um, only one, you know. And I can tell you that I have translated for Buddhist lamas in interfaith dialogues. And it, it remains an endless mystery to them in talking with theologians and priests and monks and people. They say, your God is, um, in, in your belief system, is uh, omnipotent, right? Yes. And yet you insist he only had one son? Yes. How can you do that? And then they all theories, you know, Christologies and God knows what. And they just shake their heads. And they say, well, okay, that makes sense in your terms for this time and for those people for whom that's sought and helpful. But do you think God might change his mind once in a while? Is he allowed to have a daughter or something? You know what I mean? They, you know, so the point is that uh, there are many Buddhas, not just one Buddha, because reality is beginningless. Life is beginningless. Just this planet is not beginningless. The sun, etc. There's a history of cycles, you know, big bangs, big crunches. I'm not sure about the bang, really, but sort of big evolutions and big devolutions, you know, emergences and collapses and disintegrations, yes. But then that doesn't mean that life started just in this one solar system or in this one galaxy. There's infinite life, you know, and it's infinite in that view, which is pretty easy to figure out, actually. And, um, and therefore, there are many Buddhas. And there are many gods. And they can be, they're very powerful. And um, they, they incarnate, in a sense, and what incarnation means, it doesn't just mean be reborn. 
because every being is reborn in the Buddhist science, Buddhist biology. The mind is a sort of subtle thing. It's not, it doesn't have no energy. It's not non-material in the sense of no energy. It has energy, but it's no, it doesn't have coarse material, but it inhabits coarse material, and coarse material is its instrument of learning and living and experiencing. And there are subtle forms of that and coarse forms of that. And the human is one very, very elaborated and evolved form of that, but other animals also are, and other animals definitely have souls, like Albert Schweitzer insisted, and um, human as do humans. And um, so, therefore, if someone becomes completely one with all this infinite life, in a sense, has a, develops a sense of infinite life, then they're not going to leave and abandon people. And this particular body that they would have has a human lifespan. And they would abandon that. Even divine bodies have a divine lifespan, and then they change them. And um, it was material things, that's their nature, the, the nature of energy is like that. But the incarnation means they voluntarily manifest different embodiments and lives in different worlds. And there are images in Buddhist literature of the Buddha being present on other planets and talking to other people in the vision of people on this planet, which he shows them, he gives them a kind of temporary glimpse of that in order to encourage them that they're not the only lonely ones in the universe trying to figure this stuff out. And, uh, and so way back in that ancient literature, they have the equivalent of like Star Trek, you know, they do, but they don't have a metal machine that flies around. It's, what does <laughs> it mean to say, no, please, you, you are actually answering. Yeah, so that means the incarnation, yeah. So, so therefore, that's why it's not understandable to Buddhists that the, the Lord of perfect compassion, and they're perfectly willing to say, Jesus can be that. They're not against it. But that that's the only one. This seems crazy to them. Because love is all-powerful. I mean, in John's Gospel, he says God is love, right? And the Buddhists view what they call the clear light of the void, the diamond energy that is infinite, and it's very confusing because it's a little bit paradoxical like things in life. Because it's infinite, it doesn't do anything because everything's already perfect and done in its perspective. To say it, I'm saying it not to personalize it too much because it's, it's infinite. And, uh, but it is available for any need to be fulfilled, to draw from it inexhaustibly, is the idea of this infinite energy. And that's a definition of love to a Buddhist. Love is the will to the happiness of the beloved. And so happiness, if the beloved needs this to be happy or that to be happy, this infinite energy inexhaustibly provides it to them. So therefore, a compassionate, infinite, all-powerful being, why would they only incarnate in one form? And then promise to come back, and, and some people interpret that in a really grisly manner, and instead of being everywhere for everyone. And, and why speak one language? And it's, I mean, it's just inconceivable to a Buddhist. Because precisely the culture that is more abundant, that doesn't feel so strong a need to terrorize the citizens to stay in line and follow the leader and sacrifice their personal whatever, freedom, for, in order to produce or to, to, to win the war or to whatever it is, you know, sacrifice themselves. The culture that is more ready to be generous with everyone, 
a culture that will support mendicants with a lifelong free lunch as long as they're pursuing something good. You know, that culture would not institute idea that love and compassion will only have one incarnation at one time for one people. That's, that's just considered selling God short, if you believe in an omnipotent loving God, and it's selling the clear light of clear light of uh, of the void, clear light of emptiness, which is not nothingness. It's relativity. The clear light of infinite relativity. The infinite <laughs> energy of clear, clear of infinite relativity is selling that short. Right. And so that's the understanding of it. And now the Dalai Lama is only one of numberless incarnations. You see that, that icon behind me, which is by accident, I didn't realize, so you can't really see it now, the way the lighting is. This icon behind me, there, oh, I can't, that badly did, I'm sorry. Anyway, oh yeah, you, oh yes, you can see it. Yes, we can. I was looking in the wrong thing. Yeah, that is called the thousand-armed, thousand-eyed Avalokiteshvara. And Avalokiteshvara is an interesting name, and besides being unpronounceable, <laughs> but for most people. But Ishvara means God, actually. And the creator in Indian monotheism and their various types is called Maha Ishvara, the great Ishvara. And Ishvara means powerful, you know, all-powerful Ishvara. So Maha Ishvara, the great God, you know. And Avalokita it means the great, the God, not the great one, but the God who looks down with worrying kindness, with loving awareness on beings. In other words, the loving God, Avalokita, he's looking, looking out for people. Do you know what I mean? He's not just being great. <laughs> so it's kind of a critique of the of the authoritarian version of the divine that world religions tend to inflict in different eras and periods on them, on the people, to boss them around and dominate them. Whereas the idea that the divine loving just wants to give everything to everyone, and that that the world is the gift of that one. And I think the true mystics, the you know, which were the early scientists who felt that they'd been given the planet, they'd been given all these life forms, and they were to they could learn God's wisdom through looking at the way the world works, and that there's shadows on the moon, and that the earth goes around the sun, and Galileo's out there looking in his telescope. They are like mystics, those scientists, actually, even though they rejected the Inquisition and the domineering version of religion. And believe me, there's domineering versions of Buddhism, too. And they did it. There's one funny story that one traveler went in eastern Tibet, a modern one, not ancient one. He went to some village, but before the Chinese came there, some British guy. And he, he wanted to meet the abbot of a certain monastery in eastern Tibet, who he'd heard something about or he'd met him. He was invited to go there, met him in Lhasa, and then he was, went to his monastery. And he came there, and he wasn't, in the, he wasn't at home in the monastery. So he said to the chancellor, the, the chamberlain, he said, where's the Lama? And he said, oh, he's in town. He went off to the town, Chamdo. Oh, yeah, oh really? What's he doing in town? And then the guy said, oh, he's terrorizing the citizens. <laughs> <laughs> and then... He said, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, he's telling them about if they don't give, come give something to the monastery, if they don't give gifts, if they don't behave themselves, then go, they'll go to hell or they'll have a bad life or this and that, and this fortune will befall them. And so he's going down to raise 
raise some some mendicant. He's a mendicant, you know. He's raising some funds for the monastery. So, so even you know, so all of them, you know, any kind of authority structure will can tends to want to do that to to make itself important. But everywhere there are these terrible things that happen when people misuse these beautiful things that these great incarnations of compassion, do, you know, love, uh, do. So, Dr. Burn, before, before we leave today, I'd like to ask you about consciousness. Could you, you, you've sort of talked around it, but just, could, could you explain what consciousness is or how? Well, how consciousness, well, you know, the, the, it's, um, it's a very complicated thing for people who think there isn't any such thing. <laughs> like all the materialist scientists. Right now we're having Zoom consciousness. All four of us. And we're sitting here looking at each other in Zoom and I'm talking too much, I apologize. And, but you know, that's, that's the gig just now. And uh, so, you know, we know what's going on. We're aware of each other. And we, and actually, Consciousness is 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 what the human embodiment has is the best instrument for at the moment, and we therefore should be super proud of having being human actually, and not that animals don't have souls and aren't going to be human and have been human and you know we should be taking care of them. That doesn't mean we should kill them all and leave them. If we eat them all, then they'll all be human. No. They themselves are going to be reborn human for definitely sooner or later. And we, you know, anything we can do to help that is good. And the way you do that is you find them in the bardo, you know, in the, in the between death and rebirth state. But anyway, consciousness is that. And consciousness is wild because, for example, right now, when you look at the sky, if you just look up quickly at the sky for a moment, you are the sky. But you quickly say, oh, sky and me looking. So your conceptualization jumps in and walls you off from being the sky. You've been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts in Manhattan. Please visit us the next time you are in the city or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 